Hello and welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. I am Neil Blackman, joined by Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. Eric, uh, we're recording Saturday night. Florida has just lost to Missouri. Spirits in the Gator Nation are low. Lift our spirits. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's possible right now. I mean, I, th- though I will say, I mean, uh, while it's a depressing time on Gators Twitter, there's also a lot of good jokes out there for, for <laughs> sure. I mean, um, I, I think that a lot of people's uh, hopes and dreams were kind of crushed long, long ago. So uh, it almost seems like a little bit of comedy at this point. So I'm just, you know, here looking at the memes and and, and having a good time and, and laughing through the pain and just being happy that, that the basketball program uh, looks to be in a much better place than the football side. We've hit the acceptance stage of grief with football, maybe. Uh, It's always always a dangerous phase to be in, but maybe a funny one Um, at the same time. Uh, Speaking of funny, you know, I kind of laughed leaving the building the other night at my concerns that Milwaukee was going to really push Florida. Um, Second game against the non-Power 16 that Florida had had. Second time they didn't trail. They just really never seemed uncomfortable. Pretty impressive win, Eric. Yeah, I thought it was something that was kind of apparent pretty quickly that just, man, these, like Milwaukee had some front court like pieces with some high major size. I, I think Patrick Baldwin is, is incredible. I know some people were kind of saying that he didn't play particularly well. And, you know, I don't think he shot the ball per, like well. Well, he, he, I don't know if that's a matter of what I think or not. He did not shoot the ball well. But every other part of his game, man, I, I think he's got a great handle for someone of that size. I thought he showed some great touch. Um, I think he's really impressive. Um, so, I mean, obviously Milwaukee has some pieces, but man, the front court, or sorry, the back court, those guards were just nowhere near good enough to keep up with Florida's and just kind of um, – the, the way that they struggled to get anywhere with the basketball, it was just one of those things where like, you can kind of tell in like 90 seconds, it's like uh, these guards are not going to be able to create any space. And then you just knew it was going to be tough for Milwaukee. So um, when, when you're just completely overmatching the backcourt, that's um, that's something that's hard to overcome. I think you see all the time when there's these mid-major teams that aren't as big in the front court and they kind of find ways to, to hang if their guards are good enough. Uh, this was the inverse and uh, man, just a, just a tough night for, for Milwaukee. But again, that's, that's about, what you'd hope for from, from the Gators in a situation like that, uh, just kind of like keep pouring it on kind of just a steady stream of, uh, of putting in buckets on one end and, and getting good stops and steals on the, on the other end, like didn't have to overextend themselves. Didn't have to get too deep in the playbook, just kind of a, a, a dismantling piece by piece. So uh, while it's, it can be tough to kind of have takeaways from a game where you just hammer a mid major like that, I think Florida still got to be pretty happy. Yeah, I mean, they checked a lot of the boxes that we talked about at the end of the show. Um, they played a lot of people. They Colin Castleton only played 25 minutes, which that's great, I think. Um, and then, you know, I also thought, like, there's stuff that Florida clearly can do and work on that was evident uh, after the game. Mike White talked about it a little in the post game. He said, you know, their offensive flow in the second half he thought was a lot better. But in the first half he thought that they passed up on some open shots, that they were a little tentative, um, and that they didn't move the ball quite as well as they normally had. And, I, you know, uh, certainly their assist numbers bore that out. I think they, they had five assists in the first half, and they finished the game with, uh, let me look, 21. <laughs> some of that was – 
taking the ball away a little more, getting a little more aggressive in their shell defense, their on-ball defenses in the second half. But I thought, um, you know, nice adjustments just to not even really adjustments per se, Eric, just better execution. Yeah, and I think it could have been pretty easy for, especially the last like 10 minutes of that game, to just go ball screen after ball screen and just kind of let the possessions kind of play out simply, but they, they kind of kept with their, their kind of five out moving it, throwing it into the high post running split cuts away from the ball. Um, I thought they went, one thing I did think they did differently was in the, in the first half, they did a lot of the, like throw it in and then throw it into the big man or not in throw it beyond the three point line, still in that five out spacing and then, then screen away. And um, I, I didn't think they got many particularly good looks out of that. So then they went a little bit more to what we saw against Elon and almost, adjacent to what they ran last year with the Princeton stuff where they threw it over the top and then um, ran those pinch posts and, and, and kind of got the defense moving that way. And um, again, this is still like the try stuff out and, and see exactly what's working. And I didn't think there was a little bit of a change in how they played. And that was something that worked for them a little bit better. So uh, we'll see as you know, they're about to play two high major teams these next, uh, this next week, we'll see exactly what they go to. But um, again, that was almost a good thing that they had a, kind of a slow start against Milwaukee. Cause again, if it was just like every single thing that they did was working, it's like, well, you're probably just playing a team that's awful offensively and it doesn't tell you anything. Well, it's like, Oh, they were still able to, to run against some, some seven footers and uh, an NBA player in Patrick Baldwin. Okay. You saw that something didn't work particularly well. Let's, well, let's try something else in the playbook and see if that works. And, and luckily it did. So again, this is a, this is a learning experience, which is, yeah, what you want out of a buy game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, they also, you know, went uh, two for uh, 11 in the first half from beyond the arc. Um, some of that white attributed to the lack of the extra pass and the, the extra ball reversal, <laughs> as he put it. Um, you know, he said we settled for one-sided floor jump shots too much, which I think I didn't rewatch the whole game so i can't really judge the wholesale accuracy of of that contention eric but i felt like you know if certainly they did pass the ball better in the second half and nine of 17 on the perimeter uh, in the second half some of that is just the ball went in um a little bit more some of that is that playing from behind milwaukee got a little smaller in the second half too and so they didn't have big bodies to kind of deny Florida's three-point attempts with length, I thought. Uh, but it's still good to see anytime you can make 11 threes, that's a good day at the office. Well, I don't think Mike White was intentionally trying to call out this player. At least I don't think he was trying to do it intentionally. Not really his style. But I'll tell you this. There was one point in, in the game in the first half where uh, or just early in the second where Florida was two for 11 from the three-point line and five of the misses were Brandon McKissick. So it's kind of one of those things where a couple of people were, you know, on Twitter and they're saying like, Oh, Florida's not shooting the ball. Well, look, they only, you know, they're, they're two for seven. And then they were two for 11. It's like, well, they were two for seven and three of the misses were Brandon McKissick. And then they ended up being two for 11 and five of the misses were Brandon McKissick. I, I love Brandon McKissick. I'm not trying to pile on, but there's a little bit of a time yeah. where, you know, Mike White said those comments. It was just like, well, everyone's kind of shooting the ball pretty good other than Brandon McKissick. Yeah. So, so again, and even you look at the, uh, you know, Florida ends up at, I, I think they hit 39 or 40% of their threes. I think Brandon yeah. McKissick was one for seven or one for six or something like that. So uh, again, yeah. not trying to pile on Brandon McKissick. I believe in him as a shooter, but um, it was one of those things where like you take him out of the equation and guys are actually shooting really well. And when Florida was, you know, as a 
as a team in quotes was shooting badly. It was really only one guy. So, so again, maybe, I don't know if he realized that those comments were like really singling out a player. That's not really his style. So I don't think Probably that was did. the case. I, I really don't. And uh, Hey, we all think Brandon McKissick's going to shoot the ball. Well, so uh, um, not, not, you know, not, I'm not reading too much into a yeah. one for six, three point shooting outing from him. He, the one player he actually did single out was Flan Flan Fleming, and I'm not saying that he listens to Florida Basketball Hour by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, this is our first. We always every season we have a couple of these moments where we're like, I wonder if they were listening, and um, and he said they just got him going, and that he felt like Flan Fleming had been a little lost in in some of their stuff offensively, and then he said, "That's not Flanders' fault, by the way." He said he had he was sick. And he had an injury, and he just hasn't practiced this much. So they got him back in practice, and uh, a much better game from him, I thought. Yeah, he was definitely a guy who played a little bit better in that second half in garbage time, which is good. I mean, again, what are you looking for out of these bye games? Someone like Brandon, or sorry, not Brandon McKissick, someone like Flanders Fleming that you're expecting to be a big part of your team that has maybe been a little slow to start and was over over dribbling a little bit at times in some past games. You want to kind of get him loose and, and get his confidence up. So I, I thought he played really well. And again, like he hasn't been allowing some over dribbling on the offensive end to take away from his defensive effort and just general – great production on the defensive end so you love that and it was just nice to see again some of those shots falling like if he's someone who's going to shoot you know i don't think he's going to shoot 40 percent. i think he's two for five don't think he's going to do that every night but any if he can hover around even like i'll say division one average which is you know 33 34 percent it's going to be enough to kind of keep keep people honest and um and really help out so i think it was really nice to see him have a couple of those uh those shots fall and also again he's just so crafty he's a finisher around the hoop using those kind of reverse finishes using his length his really long wingspan to to extend and finish so uh just really a lot to love there and uh um i think that uh kind of moving forward the way that you see florida's rotation shaking out it's it's pretty clear that that fleming's going to be uh someone who's probably in the lineup at the at the end of games and, and playing big minutes so uh uh pretty encouraging to see shots fall for him. Yeah, it was, it was also encouraging to see uh, CJ Felder, um, who I still don't think is a hundred percent, but it was nice to see him getting after it defensively, kind of a, a big uh, stuff. The stat sheet game had four rebounds, had a steal, had a couple blocks, um, hit one of the ugliest looking three pointers I've ever seen. Uh, but it went in baby Sean Marion, um, you know, he, he made a, made a living on on it being ugly as hell and that was uh cg filters wasn't quite marion-esque but it was that's a gross shot um but you know he was one of two out there played a little better played 15 minutes didn't play all his minutes in in garbage time although he was out on the floor for uh several minutes of that time span good to see him get going eric oh yeah definitely i i i think well, I mean, he's someone that I thought was going to start. Of course, I was the one who also wrote that Anthony DeRuji was going to be much better than he was last year. I actually realized there was some serious cognitive dissonance in in me saying, 
I think CJ Felder is <laughs> going to start at the four. And also I wrote an article about why I think that Anthony Drugi was going to be much better than he was last year. I, in retrospect, I maybe should have thought about, Hey, if I'm writing about all this stuff, why I think Anthony Drugi is going to be a lot better. Maybe he should be starting. So uh, a little bit of a miss there from, from Eric Fawcett, but uh, you know what? I'll get better for next off season. But, but again, obviously I think CJ Felder is, is going to be an important player for this team. Um, I thought that Brandon McKissick was, uh, or sorry, why do I keep saying Brandon McKissick? Uh, I thought he was going to be a really good matchup for Patrick Baldwin Jr. Uh, I think there's there's matchups in the SEC, some of these athletic foremen that I think C.J. Felder is going to be uh, a really good matchup for. And if Anthony Jerusi keeps shooting the ball like he does, just like confidently making open threes, there could certainly be some lineups, in my opinion, where you have Jerusi at the three and Felder at four and, you know, obviously Castleson at five. But you know, one thing I unfortunately want to bring up with you um, is the play of a certain front court player that wasn't particularly great. But, um, you know, that was Jason Jatobo, who uh, really struggled in his minutes on the floor. Something that was kind of like crazy to look at in the post game was uh, he was minus 11 in seven and a Ooh. half minutes, which is like very difficult to do in a game where Ooh. Florida's leading by 40 for most of it. And uh, I, I, again, not to you never want to exaggerate and, and overlook into, you know, one plus minus number, but that one's sticking out a, around a bunch of other guys that are, you know, plus eight, plus nine, plus 12 coming off the bench or the starters that were, you know, around plus 30 and uh, just genuinely just didn't look comfortable out there at all. So I, I, I kind of say that because I think we both kind of think that CJ Felder is going to get some minutes at the backup five. We finally saw that where the front court was Anthony Drugi and CJ Felder, but um yeah, Neil, what did you see from Jason Jatobo and uh, how did it affect how you see him kind of moving forward this season? Yeah, I mean, Florida, Florida's schedule, as usual, is very difficult, Eric. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering when he carves out minutes to kind of erase the bad taste I have in my mouth from that performance. Because, um, I mean, they're bigs. Like, I thought Samba Kane was – kind of nice for them defensively. Like I thought when Wisconsin, Milwaukee, I guess it's just Milwaukee now when Milwaukee was a little more stable defensively, like Kane was in, I thought um, the bigger guy, Joey St. Pierre was very bad. Um, and a lot of the minutes with uh and uh, Colin Castleton, to be fair, will like make many bigs look bad. Um, but St. Pierre, just wasn't very mobile. Just, I mean, he's big. That's about it. Uh, and, you know, it felt like just being there in person, at least six or seven of the minutes that Jatobo was out there were matchups with Pierre. And I just felt like, Jason, you're bigger, you're quicker. Uh, you should just be better. And like, he just wasn't. I mean, he really struggled. And a couple of the minutes that he was in on Samba Kane, it was not good at all. Um, you know, he had a couple turnovers when they went into him against Kane. So, yeah, just kind of a bad performance. And, and you know, I guess he'll play after Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, um, <laughs> with uh, Troy. Uh, you know, you could see him playing some there. Um, maybe in the cow game, if it gets sideways, maybe. Um, maybe just because... Igbayahu is so huge. They might have to like roll him out if they play Seton Hall, but I wouldn't do that. And that's kind of what I want to throw back to you. Like, I don't want him on the floor against Seton Hall. Not if he's going to play like that. Uh, again, if CJ Felder is going to be out there, you know, looking really good and, and providing some of that rim protection and 
more switchability and upside there. Again, I, I think right now the thing for me with Jason Jatobo, and this is again, this is small sample size theater after just a couple of games, like which could just be the title of the podcast. Just you know, let's overreact to some small sample size things. Uh, there's plenty of them that I, I actually thought about just throwing out a bunch of like these small sample size things and and saying what you want to overreact to, Neil. And there still will be some more in the podcast upcoming where I'll be like, hey, how would you like to overreact to this three game sample size? But one of my overreactions at the moment with Jason Jatobo is again, just like what matchup do you like for him? Because if you're big, you know, if you're a, someone in that kind of player archetype of, of six foot 11 and 300 ish pounds, there's kind of two ways it goes. It's one, you look at the matchups with seven footers and you say, perfect. There's some big players. That's what, how we want to match up. Perfect. We love Jason Jatobo in that matchup. Or you look at teams with six foot seven or six foot eight, 220 pound centers and you say awesome that's where we love jason jatobo because he's going to just absolutely murder that guy under the like you've got to kind of that that that's how these players have to survive and right now you don't look at either of those matchups and say hey we love jason jatobo in that role like you kind of mentioned a couple of those big guys against milwaukee you're just like okay perfect you know good matchup uh but no kind of wasn't the case or some of the smaller guys uh, right some of the undersized centers he hasn't been able to really take advantage and we saw him kind of again, get the ball in deeper on the rim and just not be able to finish, not showing good touch, not going up strong. And so again, I just, you know, you're looking up and down the schedule and saying, where do you, where do you see him next? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know either. And maybe the, the thing I really do think is the best about uh, like about the way he plays is, is his ability to, you know, hard hedge those ball screens. And um, mm. the thing is you, what you're seeing so far. And again, this is small sample size theater. Um, teams aren't putting Florida in pick and roll nearly as much as they were the last couple of years. Cause I think the last couple of years teams were teams looked at Andrew Nembhardt. They looked at Trey Mann, They look at Tyree Appleby and say, okay, let's put these kind of not great defenders. Um, you know, we can argue exactly the extent of how how could we think we were defensively but i think the teams definitely treated them like they weren't elite defenders and they're really content to just put florida and pick and roll after pick and roll after pick and roll and uh you're just not seeing that so far this season i think part of it is you just got brandon mckissick and um and tyre apley just like really getting into guys jerseys playing 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 them 30 feet from the hoop, making it tough. And I I do think the teams are going to pick on Florida's pick and roll defense later in the season in the SEC Mm -hmm. year, just like we saw. And that kind of number of pick and roll possessions against Florida, like just slowly, slowly ramped up and ramped up and ramped up until the end of the SEC season where there was a massive jump where every team just wanted to attack Florida's hedging ball screen defense. So we'll see what happens. But uh, as of right now, you're just not seeing that happen much. So Jason Jatobo's maybe biggest strength as a pick and roll defender. It's just not, it's just not really a positive. So um, man, just uh, unfortunate. There's a lot of people that, that are cheering for him. We're cheering for him on the podcast, but you see CJ Felder out there looking good. And it's like, man, maybe, uh, maybe he's the guy you want taking those backup center minutes. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, he's not, because Florida's on-ball defense is better, because their straight-line drive defense is better. I mean, Jason's not really a rim protector, per se. He's a big body, so, you know, you kind of want rim protectors in, in those situations like you've alluded to. And, like, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is matchups, absolutely. And, you know, you you look at, uh, you know, Aiko Biagu, probably one of the best rim protectors in the country, doesn't score a lot. It's not like Seton Hall throws the ball down down into him right like they don't run anything through him really but they will throw it over the top occasionally and like do you trust jason jatobo to win a position battle for him on that kind of play or do you trust jason jatobo to hang with him on the offensive glass like i don't 
And so like to some extent, I'm wondering if he's even playable in a game like that. And if he's not playable against that type of center and he's not playable against, like you said, the big bodies at Milwaukee, then, you know, it, it really kind of limits his value until somebody starts to try to hammer Florida in the pick and roll. I think, um, as you mentioned, which is, which is something that he's, he's definitely good at. And, and to be fair, last year he was doing that vis-a-vis like Omar Payne, who was miserable in those spots. So I think, you know, you also have to look at, at that situation and it was just, uh, yeah. I mean, I think if we're, being concerned about something from the Milwaukee game that they won by 36 points. I think it was definitely um, more Jason Jatobo um, shifting gears just quickly. And you can come back to the Jatobo thing if you want, but it was good to see Kwasi Reeves play a little bit and, and make a jump shot at the end. Cause I think he's going to be important in these games as they move forward. Yeah, that's actually going to lead into my next um, small sample size theater thing for you to overreact to or not overreact to. Um, but the, the, the last thing I'll say on the Jason Jatobo matter is just something that I know people who've listened to this podcast, especially since the beginning, will know that it's that it's just something I kind of talk about all the time in my writing and on the podcast. And it's whether it's strategy or players or anything it's all about like archetypes. Like, do you see teams do this at the high major level and have success? Do you see these kind of players at the high major level having success? Um, so that's why when we talk about styles of offense, like dribble drive, or we talk about defensive things like pressing and we say, Hey, look, let's look at what has happened in recent history at the high major level. Has this worked? And let's have that inform some of our decisions. Well, let's look at a player like Jason Jatobo and let's look at the high major level. How many guys out there do you see that are six foot 11 and 300 pounds and are largely ground bound? It's just not a player. You see that often. So if you've got a player in that archetype, it's like, okay, are you going to kind of shift the trend of high major basketball or are you going to have trouble getting that guy on the floor? Uh, that's uh, the situation Florida finds themselves in, but uh, going back to Quasi Reeves that we just loved seeing him get in there and show that showcase that quick release showcase that ability to hit threes. One of the things I wanted you to react to, and, and I know that there's a little bit of flu injury related to Niles Lane, but maybe slight overreaction here is here's a game where Elijah Kennedy gets more minutes than Niles Lane. So Neil, do you think that we're going to see that moving forward? Like, do you think Elijah Kennedy is ahead of Niles Lane in the depth chart? Uh, slash, do you see that being more minutes even available to, to Kowasi Reeves? I so I think I don't think he's ahead of him in the depth chart. I still think that they wanted to have another shooter on the floor, um, as opposed to a collection or aggregate of guys who can make shots, right? And I feel like, you know, well, I'm not going to tease the Seton Hall stuff again, but what I will say is that it's okay to have a collection of guys who can make shots. Uh, it's also really nice to have a shooter off the bench, and Elijah Kennedy can shoot. Um, and so I think he was out there because he could shoot. I mean, his first possession that he's out there, he shot a three. Um, and I think that was probably at least, you know, there was probably at least an, if you're open shoot before he went into the game. Um, I mean, I just haven't, we've seen nothing from Niles that says that he's ready to contribute offensively. Um, now, I do think they value his defense enough to keep giving him five, six, seven minutes in these games against Milwaukee. I think he'll play against Troy, uh, you know, but 
I don't know. I think what's going to happen is as Kawasi um, recovers from the flu and the season goes on, they'll value his length, Eric, which they need a little bit of, um, and they'll value his ability to shoot the basketball. Yeah, that's a it's it's really a shame with with Niles Lane because I think too last year when we saw him struggling kid on the floor, it was he's away from the ball, he gets the ball swung to him, he's wide open, it's a shot he's got to take, and the stroke looked bad and the shot wasn't close to going in. And that was kind of unfortunate to see for him because it's like, hey, like you you took a shot you had to take and and unfortunately you you missed it. Whereas man, this year it's it's he's out there hunting, trying to get to the rim, putting up off-balance stuff off the drive. And, and it's kind of, again, I don't know if that's, that's him pressing. Um, I do think from kind of the clips he was sharing, we were seeing from the, from the off season. I mean, we saw him as a nice looking ball handler in the pick and roll. We saw him kind of probing and, and being more of an offensive player. So I do think that that is something that he was showing in the off season that he had a little bit more of an ability to do, but yeah, just, just so far. And it's, it just hasn't looked good again very tough thing to do when it's you don't really play in the first half and you come in the second and you're, you're trying to make something happen. That's tough. But, but again, it's, 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 we're, we're seeing different off offensive struggles than last year when we saw offensive struggles. And I think that that's concerning. And uh, one thing that almost is unfortunate for him is that it'd be one thing if Florida still had like Trey man and it was like, okay, Trey man and Tyree Appleby or Flanders Fleming's on the floor. And then, those guys can all handle the ball and then Niles Lane can just be on the floor and be a defensive stopper. But, but again, like I, you know, I still like, I still like Brandon McKissick. Don't get me wrong. I, I still think he's going to shoot the ball. Well, but again, not someone with a whole lot of offensive juice Flanders Fleming. I know I just mentioned he's a good offensive player can handle the ball. We have seen that there's some matchups where it's not going to go so well for him. So while Florida has a lot of unselfish guys that work well in the system right now, there still isn't guys who can like shoulder a whole bunch of offensive load. And, and the way that Florida is playing in the five out spacing right now, they kind of need everyone to be a threat out there. And that's just not the case for, for lane right now. Yeah. I mean, the, the threat of balance only works if you are putting out lineups that are actually balanced consistently, you know, and that was what made Arkansas so good last season is, having five guys on the floor that could score, um, you know, and I think Florida's going to have to kind of track that model um, because, yeah, I mean, there's not really an elite scorer per se um, on the team other than, you know, Myron Jones is an elite shooter. Uh, Tyree Appleby is a playmaker, um, but none of those guys are like, just go get me a bucket all the time. So it's got to be balance. Um, and if Niles isn't going to contribute to that, then, you know, still may be, he still may need a little time to, to cook. I know he works really hard and, and hopefully uh, that time will come. I just don't know. You know, I want to say he's running out of time because like you said, it's a three game sample size, but <laughs> um, certainly an interesting and kind of a slow start for him. Um, but the Gators are three, and zero. And they head to Fort Myers for the Rocket Mortgage uh, tip-off classic. Uh, and facing an old foe, Mark Fox, uh, who, you know, um, I think his last five seasons at Georgia, he won 20 games. So proof that the Georgia Bulldogs basketball program can win 20 games in a season. Uh, he was then fired, 
replaced by Tom Crean, who has yet to win 20 games in the SEC uh, in his whole career um, at Georgia. And he's now at Cal. And, like, I guess year one went okay, um, but not great. They had a lot of – they had a couple COVID stoppages. And uh, year two, they don't appear to be much better. Uh, Not a very good basketball team, really. Yeah, I I, I mean – I don't want to be too too mean here. I almost want to like say this as a way to elevate some of these other leagues. But when you look at every metric and everything about them, other than the fact that they play in the Pac-12, like this is like a Mountain West caliber basketball team. Like this is, and and if you look at their four games so far this year, it's like okay, their first game of the season they lost by thirteen to UC San Diego. They were this is only their second year in the Division One ranks. Last year was their first, and they were like ninth in the Big West. So, like, that's the caliber of team that they just lost to by 13. Then they played UNLV. They lost by three. UNLV, not at the top of the Mountain West. Um, Still a good, you know, a decent program. But, you know, Cal plays them tight and and loses. Um, Then Cal plays San Diego, not UC San Diego, who they already played. San Diego from the West Coast Conference. Um, They were picked to finish ninth in the WCC. And I think that that's a 10-team league, if memory serves. Um, So, And San Diego beat them by five. Or sorry, no, they beat San Diego by five. But, you know, tight game with a team that's supposed to finish second last in the WCC. And then, um, you know, one of my favorite mid-majors in the country is Southern Utah. And they just beat Southern Utah, but it took two overtimes. So, like, you're looking even at their results where it's like, okay, either they're skating, you know, they're just getting by the ninth best team in the WCC or they're losing to a lower tier big West team. It's like, yeah, this, this California team, like I know that they'll have pac 12 on their Jersey, but uh, there's definitely some, some struggles in, in recruiting to that school. And um, this is a game that uh, yeah, Florida is going to probably being seeing a team that's a little bit more, yeah. Like mountain Westy than pac 12, to be honest. Yeah. um, Like all Mark Fox teams, they defend um pretty well collectively uh but yeah like you said they just really struggle to score last year they were last in the pac-12 here's the laundry list just so listeners know last in scoring um last in field goal percentage last in effective field goal percentage and last in three-point percentage um that's not good uh it's this hard to win basketball games that way um, and by the way, just in case you thought like it got any better elsewhere, they also didn't take very good care of the basketball, finished ninth in the league in turnover margin. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I've got to say, I, I didn't know that they were so poor from the three-point line because if there's one thing that you can look to this year um, that they've done actually pretty well, it's 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 shoot the three. Like Grant had to Savage, the six-foot-nine senior. Um, he's like seven for 15 to start the season. They've got a guard named Jordan Shepard. He's six for 15 to start the season. Um, they have a couple other like guards that like are like in the like – three for eight, three for seven range to start the season. So, so far they've actually shot the ball pretty well. So um, that was something that I was like, oh, it's maybe a little bit of a strength 13. But if you're telling me that they're, because um, I know they have a lot of the same guys that they had last year. So to know that they shot the ball poorly last year, it's like, oh, maybe they've just had a lucky four games to start the season. But I, I, again, I do think the thing for them is they're just not very quick or athletic. And that's mm-hmm. another thing that kind of makes them look a little bit more like, again, like a mid-major team is that they just like, don't have that kind of 
requisite athleticism that you normally see from high major teams. Um, so it just seems like they kind of struggle to get in the paint, kind of struggle to get easy buckets and they end up shooting threes. And so far they have hit a couple of them. But uh, one thing that I do think is, is, is pretty interesting. They roll out three, six, nine guys in the front court. Um, so that's like definitely something that's not mid majory and, and will make for some interesting matchups, especially if it's like, you know, Florida's playing Myron Jones at the three. He's going to be taking on like a, a six for nine player. But uh, uh, again, just kind of a, just kind of a, a strange lineup. That's for sure. Yeah, that is a little interesting. They have a German guy named Lars Thiemann who's seven one, and um, you know, speaking of like Niles Lane, like practice videos. So there's videos of Lars Thiemann like just draining threes and stuff and mark fox i found an interview mark fox gave where he's like yeah lars Thiemann's probably our best player in practice um and like i feel like that interview goes like a, a bunch of different there's a lot to unpack there <laughs> <laughs> like it might not be so great if like a 7-1 seldom used role player is like your best player in practice but um at the same time you know like apparently he's like a highly skilled German guy who uh, fits in pretty well with Grant and, and I can't say the name Anta Vasevich. Is that it? Uh, yeah, Anta Vasevich. I mean, I, yeah. I I avoided their other six nine forward, and I'm looking for a pronunciation guide on their uh, Cal website right now, and I'm not getting it. Sadly, the uh, um, Sudanese Kwani today. Kwani. It is Kwani Kwani. Okay. Yeah, it's Kwani Kwani. There you go. Yeah. I hate. I, I I know I do it on this podcast all the time, but I, I just hate pronouncing mispronouncing yeah. names. So <laughs> I avoid yeah. it when possible. Looking for a pronunciation guide, they don't have it here on the Cal. They don't have roster. a phonetic. Yeah, they don't have a phonetic one on the Cal website. Um, so I had to watch some Cal Southern Utah to figure out that it was in fact Kwani Kwani, unless those announcers got it totally wrong, which is also possible, I guess. You know, <laughs> anyone that watched. Uh, Vern Lundquist called Chris Richard Cliff Richard for the entirety of his collegiate career knows that you can't always trust the announcer um, to get it right. By the way, while we're kind of in a break, um, just talking about nonsense, I did want to correct one. Tanner Lefebvre, uh, his second team is Iowa, and he excoriated me on Twitter <laughs> for the allegation, which was false, um, that Florida State had crushed Iowa and Luca Garza. Um, so I apologize to him, but I don't apologize to Matt Painter and Florida State uh, and Purdue, who Florida State absolutely pummeled at the Emerald City tournament. Um, so uh, there you go. I have I have now corrected a, a fact there because it's very important to do such things there. Well, when we talk for an hour on the podcast, usually multiple times a week, we're just like destined to say things wrong. I know I say stuff wrong all the time. Sometimes I like realize I'm like laying in bed and I realize that like four hours previously i i totally said something that was a lie not because i intended to but because i just i got mixed up so anytime people want to fact check us fact check us that is that is awesome because uh um yeah we uh we want truth here on the podcast but yeah it, no, it's I funny with the with the pronunciation thing as well i don't know if you noticed this but i i tweeted something out about the uh the gators you know five out <laughs> offense right after the first year and something that i often do while watching games um is because i you know i do watch watch a lot of games i usually watch them on on a tool called synergy so it like cuts with the commercial so it's really right just you know right down to the nitty-gritty so i will often watch like npr tiny desk concerts um or something like that oh, and have so the good. game on mute so like 
one, it's like funny. Cause I was like tweeting out these videos and I didn't realize that I like just in the background had some like Spanish artist that was playing. Um, but then the <laughs> other thing too, is I will often miss the pronunciations of players. Um, like when uh, I was watching a whole bunch of Oral Roberts and like right before Florida played them and totally mispronounced both Kevin O'Banner and Max Asmus. And I swear I watched like four games, but it was like, I was watching it while definitely having like a tiny <laughs> concert on or something. So anyways, that is uh that was the cause for some really bad mispronunciations, which just was seemed very disrespectful, especially when Oral Roberts went on to beat Florida, but, uh, but yeah, it happens sometimes. So, um, I'm glad I'm glad you had the pronunciation and I'm glad you watched uh, Southern Utah, one of the uh one of the better mid-major teams in the country, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. They're up there. Um yeah, I like I'm with you on waving the Bob Ricci like Furman flag. Um, just because like now that Mike Young is at Virginia Tech, like I'm like, who runs the best offense? And like for me, it's definitely like all the stuff that Bob Ricci does um at Furman. But yeah, man. Uh Southern Utah's good. Like those guys can play. Um, one thing they couldn't do is stop Andre Kelly, who might be the last person we talk about with Cal. Uh, any potential problems that he could pose for the Gators? Well, he's just a really good one-on-one post player, which Florida hasn't really played yet. And um, again, Colin Castleton's obviously got good size, but if you're like if you're Cal and you're saying, "Hey, how do we beat the Gators?" I would say two things. One, you just shoot a lot of threes and you hope you continue to make them at a high rate. And then two, you pound it inside to Andre Kelly and you see if you can get Colin Castleton in foul trouble. Um, I think that we all can kind of agree that Colin Castleton has been the most effective Gator through three games. Um, I think especially in a game where Cal doesn't necessarily have length and athleticism to throw at them. They do have like bulk of Andre Kelly, who's you know shorter than Castleton, but definitely weighs more and is – pretty physical. I mean, I I think that he could get Castleton into foul trouble a little bit. So that would be the kind of one thing that concerns me is like, do they get Castleton out of the game and do they shoot a bunch of threes and, and, and hit them like they, they have in a couple of games so far this year. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's definitely their path to victory. Uh, But I think it's a pretty narrow path. Um, And given what they've done the rest of the year and given the fact that a lot of Florida fans have gobbled up tickets from my uh, contacts in Fort Myers. So definitely expecting the usual suspects, which means Seton Hall always travels well. Uh, and, and Florida, I'm sure there will be occasional, you know, there's always Buckeyes everywhere. Um, but, but I don't think Cal's going to have very many fans uh, in the building <laughs> Monday night. Uh, so kind of playing a road game too. As the Kim Palm characterized it as a semi home game for Florida. Um, you know, not not gonna be a quad one win for the Gators. Uh let's talk about the other two teams in the Rocket City Mortgage tip off classic. Uh let's begin with Ohio State, who uh started the season at the edge of the top ten and is now maybe gonna fall out of the top twenty five. It's possible, I guess. I um you know, I just don't I've actually watched two of their games, Eric. Um, pretty much the whole Xavier game and parts of the Akron game, just because the score was interesting. Um, so I guess I've watched them play twice, but not two full games. It just seems like Chris Holtzman's team still trying to figure out who it is a little bit. Yeah, and kind of 
just kind of so, like something we just mentioned with Cal, actually. They're better than Cal, but their two best players are, well, maybe not two best players. Their best player is EJ Liddell, a front court player who um, last year was really good as well. Um, and then a player that we really wanted to be a Gator in Zed Key, um, just two front court players that can really get it done and can really score. But, uh, you know, Michi Johnson, you know, a good recruit, but still a freshman point guard. Neil, you mentioned earlier that uh, winning with a freshman point guards is tough to do uh, Malachi hard. Branham again another another freshman he got he's kind of playing backup point guard for them so so really they're getting like 40 minutes out of freshman point guards and uh, that's just not a recipe to win all the time so you're seeing some struggles with that but at the same time they're still really really good offensively and a lot of it is playing through those big men even though Zed Key and EJ Liddell are both like six seven six eight like 245 um, actually man like Zed Key I know you saw this Neil but like he was kind of like a smaller, skinnier guy in high school. And it was kind of like, oh, is this six foot eight, 195 pound guy? Like, is he going to be able to keep scoring on the block at the, the high major level? And I just didn't even recognize him when I saw their first game this year because he put on so much weight and just looks massive and is awesome. So uh, they do have some kind of bulk and size. But yeah, still like their front court is like six foot seven, six, eight guys, but they can really get it done. They can score and they can really pass out of the post. And they just make it really tough to guard um, by having the ball kind of behind the defense all the time on the block trying to guard cuts and, and actions for shooters so i think they run really good stuff offensively but um kind of a kind of stereotype type big 10 team where just like not super long not super athletic throws the ball into the post and plays out of it um we saw that matchup didn't work or that style of play didn't work very well for them in the ncaa tournament last year and i think it got them caught against xavier so um I, I will jump out i think you kind of implied this earlier in the podcast but um i do like seton hall to beat them yeah, I mean, I, I'll get to that in just a moment because I think you're right. Um, you know, I, I, I think not having Dwayne, well, I mean, it goes without saying, like, you don't have a, well, you don't have your All-American. Um, but, you know, although I've seen Florida fans not be particularly gracious about missing an All-American and it impacting your basketball ability to win, zing. So um, I will say that, you know, Ohio State is learning that not only is it hard to play with freshman point cards, it's also hard to play without your All-American. And Dwayne Washington, just whenever things went south for them last year, it was always like, oh, it's Dwayne Washington time. And they don't really have that guy. Like, I think Justin Aarons, like, they kind of hope that maybe they can give him the ball. They hope that they can eventually give those freshmen the basketball. They brought in the kid from Penn State, the other the, – the other, the Robin, the Myron Jones's Batman. What's his name? Uh, Sabari Wheeler. He's a good shooter, um, pretty good, like a 36, 35.5 career three-point percent shooter. Um, and we're seeing Penn State right now is hurting without Myron and him. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, there's just not really who go get your bucket, and they don't have the balance that Florida has, at least yet, to kind of counteract that. Uh, and I think it's going to be problematic in Seton Hall, especially because – um, you know, we, we know what Seton Hall can, can do with Ike Biagu And, and we know that, that like, I mean, Trey Jackson right now is playing lights out. Like, I just, I don't know. I like Seton Hall a lot. I think they're good. I, I love Seton Hall. I just think like, again, we just kind of said that big 10 or the like big 10 is kind of encapsulated by like how Ohio state plays and like Seton Hall is like your stereotype big East team. 
Like they play big, they play really tough. They've got city guards. Like, uh, like their front court rotation is just fantastic. Like I go Biagu, like you said, Tyree Samuel, just like an incredible defensive player, six foot. Like they also just roll out like a massive front court. They're all athletic. Um, Alexis Yetna, a player that a lot of people will be familiar with because he was just a stat sheet stuffer at South Florida. Um, Trey Jackson, like you said, so like. I think their front court rotation in terms of like too deep at the power forward, too deep at the center position, like as good as anyone in the country, then Bryce Aiken, someone who put up a whole lot of points at Harvard before he transferred. So He's like he dude. can get a bucket. Kadari Richfin, like an incredible defensive player, just again, just like so tough. And then someone who just like encapsulates that like Big East toughness so well as Miles Kale, like a six foot six defensive wing streaky shooter but man just tough as nails and he's a fifth year player so um just super experienced so um i i seen hall is like the exact team that like i know i'm going to pick to go deep in the ncaa tournament kind of like no matter the matchup because they're big they're physical and they're experienced and they've got guys who can go out and score one-on-one yeah they're they're kind of they're like the antidote to ohio state too like ohio state very efficient offensively because they can get baskets near the bucket um, at a pretty high rate. And I don't think that that's not like something that Seton Hall, like Seton Hall did a fantastic, like, I don't think people realize how good like Hunter Dickinson is if they don't watch the big 10 a lot. And Seton Hall just did like, he just didn't score the last eight minutes of their game against Michigan. They just took him away. Um, and it was just multiple guys. And the other thing is like Dickinson, normally if you do that is he's such a good passer, Eric that it doesn't really matter. And like, yeah, like Michigan didn't make shots as much, but also Seton Hall is so long, like they're longer than Florida. So like they can deal with that distribution to the open shooter um, a little bit easier. And they're just so fundamentally sound on closeouts because they get out on them. And, and look for Ohio state to win, they'd have to buck what's been happening in these Gavit games, which is just that the big East has just been pummeling <laughs> the big 10. I mean, they're just destroying the big 10 so far. So, I mean, they'd have to, they'd have to buck that trend. And I, again, I do think Seton Hall will have a fan edge as well. Having been yeah. determined where Seton Hall is, uh, you know, the pirates basketball fans travel because they don't have a hundred thousand football stadium to fill the Saturday before the tournament. <laughs> Yeah, I like kind of uh, mentioned earlier. Seen Hall already beat Michigan. I think Mich- again, it was a tight game. The only one by two, but I think Michigan is a lot better than in the Chrysler Center. Yeah, and like, and they and they are also kind of play a, a similar style. It's like, except it's you know seven foot one Hunter Dickinson um, or six foot seven EJ Liddell. So. I just don't really see exactly what what Ohio State is going to do to to really do something that Michigan wasn't able to do. So, so I really like seeing Hall in this, uh, this game and I really like or to, to beat Ohio state. And um, it'd be a really tough matchup for the Gators. So one that would be uh, almost Florida state type matchup, which maybe makes the Gators feel a little bit better about it than, than they would normally. But uh, uh, what's going to be good is like, no matter what, at least like, even if there was like absolute disaster and Florida loses to Cal, they're going to get another really good game uh, no matter who they play, but uh, they'll have a chance at like, Hey, get that, high major win against Cal and then play a really good game. Like hopefully a Seton hall that is like probably going to be like, in my opinion, a top, like a, a sweet 16 or better team this year. And uh, that would be a pretty good experience experience for this team that wants to go deep in March and a really good resume boost. 
Yeah, I mean, I think either win is going to be – either game is a quad one win opportunity um, for Florida, Ohio State, or Seton Hall. It's going to be a quad one um, – a chance to win a quad, a, a quad one game. Um, and I would say, yeah, I mean, Seton Hall is a tough matchup for Florida. Uh, you mentioned Kadari Richmond, who's a guy that, like, I, you know, I don't know if he can score enough to play in the NBA, but, like, it's a little bit like Anthony DeRuggieri because it seems like – and I don't mean like in the they're like for like. Don't confuse that because Kidari Richmond is like just a much better defender than Anthony Deruji in my opinion. But you get what I'm saying with like the body and the, the you know the way that he is built. He looks like somebody that a roster will take a look at. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to generate a hot take and say that he's going to be on an NBA roster next year, but I you know he. Is definitely somebody that if he can figure out how to score a little bit, has a shot to play in the NBA. Um, and then they have guys that don't care about playing in the NBA that can really fill it up. Jared Roden is a dude that can score. He can score in a lot of different ways. You mentioned Bryce Aiken, who's just an absolute bucket getter at Harvard. Um, and I don't think you've even mentioned one of your favorite players on their roster, uh, the USF kid, uh, Alexis Yetna, who transferred there. <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh, again just someone who is like got so many points uh, on the block, like posting up, kind of in that like face up from uh, the free throw line kind of area, and and he was someone he at the transfer portal could have gone, you know, a lot of places for sure, and uh, you see that Seton Hall has had a pretty good a pretty good record with big men. The other thing that Seton Hall does consistently is like, like Alexis Yetna is like six foot eight and 225 pounds. And I think that like 90% of teams that he would go to would say like, okay, you're playing almost primarily as a center, but uh, Seton Hall is just like always played two really big guys in the front court while still playing like well-spaced modern offense. We saw that with Sandra Mama's Mamu Kelishvili, who's now in the NBA, like he was yeah. someone who legitimately handled the ball, played like some point guard, um, was on the floor next to a true center a lot of the time. Like Seen Hall's commitment to playing big, but also still playing skilled is just kind of unlike what a lot of teams are doing. And I think that was a great, great decision by Alexis Yetna. And I think he's going to be really good this year. And he's already off to, uh, to a really good start. Um, a little bit quieter against Michigan. I watched a little bit when they played Yale and he was awesome. So um, definitely a player to watch. Yeah, no. I'm glad you mentioned Sandro because um, he was their first NBA draft pick in like five years at Seton Hall. And all that Kevin Willard has done in the meantime is kind of like go from being on the hot seat to having really good job security and being beloved by that fan base because he just kept working and kind of said, look, there's a way that we're going to play at Seton Hall and we're going to defend and we're going to get after you. I like the the phrase city guards because that's what they have. Like, you know, they're going to get out and harass you. They, they'll, they'll, they're tenacious with their on-ball defense. They've got, you know, Obiagu, I've mentioned, name-dropped about 20 times on the podcast because he's just such a dominant rim protector and, like, doesn't care that he doesn't score, doesn't care that they don't throw the ball down to him, like, you know, that's, he's fine with his role. They have guys that set their role. Like I just, what I love about Kevin Willard and what I need to see more than three games up from Mike White is that Kevin Willard is just committed to winning his way. Like he said, you know what, if I'm getting fired, I'm going to get fired doing what I know how to do. 
And like, I, that's why I like this roster that Mike White built so much. Cause it was like, he's going to be old. They're going to defend. Um, they're going to be tough. They're going to have a little bit of a nasty, we're underrated edge to them. And that was like what Mike White's early teams were. And I kind of felt like, and it's Louisiana tech teams. And I kind of felt like Eric. So I think you can draw some parallels between like Willard and his resuscitation of Seton hall to where like Mike White is even if Willard is a little further down the road. Yeah. The thing too, about Seton hall, that's kind of different from what they're doing and what Mike White does is Seton hall doesn't recruit at a super high level, um, at least from like a ranking standpoint. But again, you like look up and down their rosters and they've got guys that stay three or four years and they don't right. really, they don't really miss on, on players. And uh, again, I think that that the, the teams that don't miss on players are the ones that have a very defined style of play because whenever they recruit a player, whether it's a high school player or a junior college transfer or um, a true transfer is like the, the teams that know exactly how they're going to play. There's just like less variance for them to find out that a player doesn't work. So again, I do think that's why during the earlier Mike White years, Florida got some good recruits that didn't work out. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that they did not have a particular style of play. They did not have a defined offensive system. And that for that reason, they were bringing in guys that, you know, were, were, good players, but they didn't know exactly how the pieces were going to fit. Whereas Seton Hall, you know exactly where the pieces are going to fit. So uh, they play a style that is, is kind of like, you, you know what they're going to look like, you know, how, uh, you know, how tough they're going to be and you know, they're going to play big and then play through some of those big men. And uh, yeah, really good, really good, uh, really, really good team that I'm just a huge fan of. And I just wonder if this is going to be one of those circumstances on the podcast where we just really love on a team for like 20 minutes and then, the Gators don't end actually end up playing them. So we'll see. But Matt, I really like seeing all of this matchup with, uh, with Ohio state. Yeah, no, they're good. And a great point about the recruiting. I mean, their best recruit recruiting class in the last five years in a time span where they've won a big East championship. So they've won the championship in a, in a power six league uh, was 45th. Now they've done it. He's done a great job. Like Mike white in the portal, you know, bringing in Trey Jackson, bringing in Bright. Bryce Aiken, bringing in Alexis Yetna, bringing in Obiagu, who was a, a Seminole. Um, so, you know, they've, they've done that. But, yeah, I mean, they're, they've had only a couple uh, top 50 recruits in that span. And then one top 25 recruit, Miles Powell, that's it, um, which worked out pretty well, Miles Powell. But, <laughs> um, you know, still a little bit different. But I do like just this commitment. Like, we're not going to change who we are. And, like, I definitely felt like, you know, Mike White's made adjustments to the offense, and I think that's good and, and was necessarily needed. But Florida definitely needed to get back to its defensive identity, and they appear to at least be starting to do that this season, Eric. Yeah, and I think we're going to know a little bit more um, after these next two games exactly how good they are. I know there's some some national media where, like, this could be, end up being the number one defense in the country. I. I don't personally see that. I mean, people will remember no. that I said this team was going to be better offensively than defensively in our preseason predictions. After three games, do I regret that? Quite possibly. Um, yeah. But but again, I do I do think at some point Florida's lack of big time length and athleticism will keep them from being like cream of the crop. But man, still we're seeing that with that many guys like dedicated to defending at a high level, that much speed. Um, that much intelligence. It's like, yeah, obviously they're going, going to be uh, um, they're going to be really good on the defensive end. And and I don't know if you've looked at this, Neil, but like like Ken Palm right now is not really a reliable thing to look at in terms of rankings because they've got the preseason yeah. 
um, like up until like January, there's the preseason predictions that are kind of baked in with the, uh, with the results. So like right now, Florida would be the 17th ranked team defensively um, in Ken Palm, where um, if you look at something like Bart Torvik, which is all based off results from the season, um, the Gators are ninth in defense. So mm. I think that's kind of an interesting number that people uh, you can, you know, you can have your own kind of conclusions of how good you think this, this Gators team is, but it's worth noting that again, tiny sample size around the whole country, but so far, at least according to Bart Torvik, the Gators would be the ninth best team in the country defensively. So, you know, do they stay a top 10 defensive team? Are they more of like a 15th best defensive team? I still think without the like massive physical tools, I think they're maybe going to end up being like more like 15th than than ninth, but, or higher, but uh, we will see. And we will see uh, when teams start really trying to pick on their, like, again, I, I, I think sec coaching is incredible. I really like a lot of the guys in the sec and a lot of them were just absolutely relentless in their attacking of Florida's pick and roll defense. So I'm curious to see if that happens again, if Florida changes their pick and roll defense, what happens there. But for the time being, man, Florida is just built to just, you know, wreck these teams defensively um, in the early season where it's like, okay, you know, X's and O's aren't at a high level schemes aren't totally figured out. So who's got more dogs on the defensive end and who plays tougher and has more foot speed. And like right now the Gators are just making it hard for guys to dribble across the half court line. So it's fun to watch. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, it's definitely fun. And when you extend people, you do make it a little harder to get into those pick and roll actions. And, you know, maybe that'll be something that reaps benefits down the line for Florida. I think um, certainly, you know, yeah, coaches are going to figure stuff out and, and adjust to the Gators. I will say I test wise just being there um, Thursday and then I'm looking forward to Monday, even though it's only Cal, I won't be able to get. Uh, back over to, to Fort Myers the night before Thanksgiving with children to see the uh, the big marquee game um, as much as I would love to. But um, they are definitely faster than they've been. Um, and particularly like with Tyree Appleby on the floor with McKissick, it's a little bit of a different kind of a look, Eric. Um, and then, of course, Colin Castleton, just with his hustle getting down the floor particularly on the defensive side. Yeah. I mean, I think you spoke to, they're a little faster than I thought they'd be. I don't think that they have the elite length to be a top 10 defense, but you know, maybe a top 20 defense is very possible. And if they are, I do think they will be good enough offensively to, to compete in the sec. So um, we will learn more um, in the next couple games. You know, if you can dispatch of a lower level team from the conference of champions uh, the way you should, then, uh, I think that's yet another good sign. And then obviously, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think Seton Hall is kind of like your shot to have a chance to beat somebody in November that's going to be a one through four seed, I think. So, you know, I don't know if they're quite on that one line, but there certainly could be a team that's one of the top 16 seeds. And that's a nice win to have. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, again, I think if you play Florida State and then you play Seton Hall in a matter of a couple of weeks, like those are two of the like just straight up like meaner defensive teams and some of the longest, most physical teams in the country. So like just like the experience of playing that, that'll get you ready for the SEC. That'll get you ready for for March basketball. So there could be some time down the line where it's like, huh, if they were able to, you know, if they played Seton Hall. Um, wow. It was great that they were able to, you know, play 
competitive games with with Florida State and Seton Hall because wow, you're now seeing them absolutely bully smaller teams, you know, later in the season, or they're totally prepared for seeing these other kind of big athletic teams in the SEC or you know however it works. But yeah, big week, fun week. Yep, should be a good one. So thanks for listening, and we will be back after the uh, tip-off classic. Everybody have a, a good uh, Thanksgiving, and we'll look forward to talking to you all on the other side. Go Gators. Go Gators. Keep attacking closeouts. I love it. I love it.